2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be part two of a two-part episode on the illusion
0: of explanatory depth. So if you have not heard part one yet, it it is sort of foundational to the research we're going to be talking about today. You should go back, listen to the episode before this one, the first one about how we really don't understand half of what we think we do.
1: Right. Yeah. uh, I was reminded in researching this of a particular episode of uh, Adventure Time. Uh, the fabulous Cartoon Network, uh, uh, animated series. Uh uh-huh. In which they encounter a demon cat. It's kind of a, a riff on a Dungeons and Dragons Displacer Beast. It's voiced by Clancy Brown.
0: Clancy Brown, the guy from, uh, what, uh, 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 oh, I'm thinking, Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption.
1: Oh, was, Highlander, he was the Kurgan. It, he's the villain in both movies, isn't Oh, he? yeah. I mean, one is a little more, a, a little more evil than the other. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it's... It's, it's all subjective. But, uh, but in this particular piece, he's a demon cat, and the demon cat probably, uh, informs the heroes that he has approximate knowledge of all things. <laughs> and that's how I often feel here at How Stuff Works. Is that, that is what
0: I'm afraid of.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of a, what I'm, um, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. We can, right. Can, can, we're not experts in any given topic uh but we're continually uh diving down often rather deep into a variety of topics
0: we have to be explanatory generalists and it yeah. means yeah it means we we're we actually develop expertise in no one thing <laughs> except maybe hopefully in the process of explaining but We'll see. I mean, that process is sticky enough, as we discovered last time. So brief, brief refresher on what we covered in the last episode. It's the, this idea of the illusion of explanatory depth, this uh, this big 2002 paper uh, that basically research has shown that people display different levels of accuracy in how confident they are about their own knowledge in different knowledge domains. So that sounds kind of abstract, but here's how it means. People are pretty accurate in guessing how well they know narratives like movie plots Mm -hmm. You can be pretty accurate in saying, "I, I think I know that about a four out of seven. And then you probably do know it about a four out of seven. And procedures like how to tie a bow tie or how to make a pizza, they're a little bit less accurate in how well they know facts like the capitals of countries. And they are much less accurate in their ability to explain the workings of complex causal systems or what has been called theory-like knowledge? Can you explain how a toaster works or how a cylinder lock works or natural phenomenon? Can you explain how tides work or how rainbows are formed? We just tend to systematically overestimate how well we understand these latter types of things. But the research has also shown that we can be made aware of our own lack of understanding in a very simple way, just being asked to explain them. So you think you understand how a cylinder lock works. Can you please explain it? And then you say, oh, yeah, okay. And then you try to explain it. And then if you're asked to re-rate again your confidence in how well you understand it, you will rate your confidence lower after having tried to explain. You'll realize there are big gaps in your understanding.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the example that I threw out in the last episode was you, something's wrong with the sink. You get out your toolkit because you think you can fix it yourself. And then you quickly realize, oh, my understanding of how this sink works, uh-huh. uh, is, is not really sufficient for the, for the task at hand.
0: Yeah. Whoops. I, yeah. You, you realize you have, uh, you've bitten off more than you can chew. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and this, again, seems to be mostly unique to explanatory knowledge, how complex causal systems work, like how machines work, how natural phenomena work, and maybe some other things we can talk about in this episode, maybe like how policies work. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, but the same thing does not happen when people are asked to rate and explain how to do something or to recall the plot of a movie they've seen. It's specifically with this explanatory understanding of how things work. Now, one of the first things I think we should look at today is how the last study we looked at last time, it uh, it talked about adults. Right. But it might also be interesting to ask, is this same thing true of kids in second grade, fourth grade, kindergarten? <laughs> I mean, do, uh, Robert, you, you often have wonderful insights about the minds of children, uh, maybe drawn from experience. Oh,
1: uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, my son, Bastian, it's Constant questions about how things work and what things are and why they are that way, uh, almost to the point of, of insanity on, uh, on, on, on the parents part. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I'm constantly having to explain things to him. Do, do you think Bastion would be very confident
0: in his own ability to explain how a toilet works or how a cylinder lock works?
1: No, he is, um, well, he'll occasionally have uh, a bit of overconfidence in his understanding of something is when he tries to explain it to us. But then when we correct him on it, mm-hmm. uh, he's he generally goes with it I and mean, he he always goes goes with it. He He's willing to admit, oh, I guess I don't know how that works. But, but like the toilet scenario, if I were to say, do you know how a toilet works? And if he said he did and then he couldn't explain it, his response would be, let's go look in the toilet. That's uh, awesome. Well, yeah, I mean. That's a great instinct. Except the, the sad part is, and this is a, one of the realities of parenting, uh, you, you think you're gonna be able to, you're gonna, well, I told myself this before uh, my son came in, into our lives, that I would answer all the questions. I would, I would have <laughs> the, the patience to do it. And it's a wonderful thought, uh, but the reality is you just don't you don't have the time. So if the toilet, for example, or if, necessarily always the understanding, right? Right. Well, but like with the toilet, the first two times he asked to look into the back of the tank to take the, the heavy top off and see the, the, the float system and all mm-hmm. uh, I, I obliged because it was fun, but it it comes up again and again, Hey, can we go take the toilet apart? And there's just often not time. Well,
0: I think that is an admirable curiosity to see the guts of the machines that sustain <laughs> our everyday lives. Uh yeah but so my question also would be you said he he's okay to be corrected when you tell him no that's not how something works here's how it works mm-hmm. D- does he does he catch himself like like was described in the uh, experiments here if he's forced to explain does he realize in the process of explaining that he doesn't know
1: not necessarily he doesn't really l- Throw out a bunch of really robust explanations for things, mm-hmm. but he'll have this uh, sort of a a rough one, two, three point explanation of something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, he's pretty accurate. Uh, you know, we have to say, "Oh, well, that is basically how this thing works." Uh, but other times we're like, "Oh, no, no, you're missing a, a major component here."
0: Well, I think he might be might be falling in line actually with some research we're just about to look at. So one of the authors of the original illusion of explanatory depth study, uh, Frank C. Kyle. Uh, along with the psychologist Candace M. Mills, authored another study published in 2004 in the Journal of Experimental Child Psychology. And what they were looking for was to see if they could find evidence of the illusion of explanatory depth in children the same way Kyle and associates had found it in adults. And so, uh yeah, so this was published in 2004. And they start by observing Young children have a lot of metacognitive shortcomings that that's not an insult, <laughs> not to rag on little kids. Like, kids are so dumb, but they're very bad at predicting how well they will do at mental tasks. One example that the authors give is that they tend to be overconfident in their abilities. Uh, for example, school uh, preschoolers and kindergartners, they will tend to believe that they will be able to recall more than a dozen items from a list, but then they can only recall two or three.
1: Yeah, I, I've I encountered shades of this with, for instance, the question, hey, if you go with us on this trip, will you be able to walk everywhere because daddy's not going to be able to carry you? Mm-hmm. And he might say yes. But then when it comes down to the actual walk, uh, he's asking to be carried. Yeah. I guess you could categorize that in a, a few different ways, but it yeah. might line up with what we're talking about. Yeah. Here.
0: Motor categories versus mental. Do you see the same thing with purely mental tasks or mm. I guess it probably doesn't come up that often.
1: I guess not. I guess we, we tend to know what he's capable. I guess the, the the thing that would come to mind would be a ability to set still and maintain attention on something. But it, it's difficult because we're it's not like we're saying, hey, you ready to go see the Nutcracker and sit there for two hours? And him saying, yes, of course, like we know he's not going to sit there for two. hours. I'm going to have trouble sitting there and watching the Nutcracker for two hours.
0: I guess for me, it would depend on how monstrous the costumes are.
1: Yeah, but then you're only going to get monsters in, in act one. Act two of the Nutcracker is just a bunch of, uh, silly dances. Oh, I'll- you
0: know what? I just, I just had an illusion of narrative depth there where I thought <laughs> I remembered what's in the Nutcracker, but I opened my mouth to say and then I'm like, wait, what does happen?
1: Well, because you remember the, the act one stuff. That's yeah. where all the action is. That's where there's a rat king and sword fights. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is just, uh, you know, sitting there waiting to go home.
0: Mm, well,
1: okay. I'm sorry. I'm being unfair to, uh, to a a wonderful, uh, uh, work of Russian art here. Okay. We should get back on track with the study. So the
0: question is, do children show the same illusion of explanatory depth as adults or is it
1: manifested slightly differently or do they not show it at all? Okay. Now in answering this question, we do have to just quickly remind everyone that children are not inhuman, right? (laughs) They're born with a lot of preloaded cognitive abilities. So Every kid is kind of a, a natural Eucl- uh, Euclidean. Uh, they, they, they're born to navigate a three-dimensional world of fixed and movable objects. I mean, that's just those are just, just a, a level of cognition you need, right. in order to live in the world. Uh-huh. Uh, so start utilizing geometry before you can even name stuff, and then there's a, an innate understanding of basic physical laws. So. Only adults really believe in magic, Um, while a toddler will see right through all the the supernatural. There's an MIT study even came out that found that young children understand that teleportation is not feasible. So the kids have to essentially they have to learn that kind of malarkey uh, uh, over time, but they're. They're they're born having a certain a certain uh, idea of how the world works at a very basic level.
0: Well, I mentioned in the last episode the idea that in a lot of cases th- there is no such thing as magical causation. I mean, mentally, I'm not saying in the real world. Mm-hmm. I mean, even you you're not able to imagine. Magical causation because if you're imagining causation, it becomes in some sense physical Mm -hmm. and not magical. Magical just means like the blurring of the concept of causation. And so I wonder if if. What it is is that kids have this idea of causation, and as they grow up, they learn to make an artificial distinction where there's this other thing—magical causation—which in fact is just not an intuitively real concept.
1: Yeah, it kind of goes back to the helium balloon magic uh, example that I, I, I shared in the last episode. Yeah, my son used the word magic to describe it. Basically, is a descriptive term for something behaving in a way that 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 he did not predict.
0: Yeah, it's cog- it's uh, it's causally vague. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: So, yeah. So what happened in this experiment? Well, the experimenters used a modified version of the device test from the original research. If you remember from the last episode, uh, they wanted to, to test the illusion of explanatory depth and how well people think they understand devices from around their home, like a toaster or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they tested this in a group of kindergartners, second graders, and fourth graders. And then they also recruited adults to independently rate the explanations given by the children as a measure of sort of the directional accuracy of the children's adjustments of their own confidence after giving the explanations. So, uh, for example, the kids would give explanations of how a toaster works. And uh, because these were kids, this was done orally instead of written. So uh, I thought these were were good enough to read, maybe. Uh, kindergartner explains how a toaster works. You put something in it. (laughs) I love it, something. You put something in it, and then you press a button, and then you press the button, push it down and leave it there, and then it heats, and then it comes up, too.
1: All right, well that's okay. that's accurate.
0: Yeah, fairly accurate. Yeah. Not a lot of detail about the parts and what they do, but okay. Mm-hmm. Uh second grader says, "Well, you put the bread in and you push this little lever down, so then there you go. It'll heat rays inside and it'll make the bread really really hard and stuff and it'll just pop out." Okay maybe a little better. And I, I wish I like worked in a restaurant now because I want, I would want to make that the terminology in our kitchen. Like, Hey, make that bread really, really hard.
1: Call the heat raise.
0: <laughs> and then the fourth grader says like, Okay, a toaster is made by electricity. You plug it in. There's a cord. It comes electricity and then you put the bread in. Then you press the button down. When you hit that button all the way down, red lights, which is heat coming out, which is from the electricity, and it heats the bread, and when it comes out, it's toast.
1: Oh, okay, so you're starting to get there. Yeah, I mean, uh, that explanation, I feel, has some problems. Um I I feel like it's I I feel like it's at once more accurate and more confusing. I think uh,
0: that's the process of growing up, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, well yeah. I, and I think that's probably uh that's probably uh, that's probably my process with a lot of things we research here where I'm thinking this is this is making a lot more sense and it's raising so many additional questions yeah, for
0: me. You're at the same time gaining more correct knowledge and becoming more
1: confused. Yeah, and this will this will come back again when we get to uh, politics and policy in a bit.
0: Right. Uh so the results from this experiment, what happened uh, when they they essentially ran the same test of the original study from 2002 on these children. Um well, the older children definitely showed an illusion of explanatory depth. The uh second graders and the fourth graders showed clear awareness of the illusion of explanatory depth. Uh the younger the uh, the younger the children the higher they rated their own understanding by the way. So the kindergartners they rated their own understanding of how a toaster works the highest. Mm-hmm. Uh, kindergartners did overestimate their understanding, meaning like independent judges read their explanations and rated them lower than the kindergartners rated their own explanations. But the kindergartners were much less likely to recognize this fact upon being forced to give an explanation. Uh, unlike most adults and the, the second graders and the fourth graders, 16 of the 24 kindergartners appeared to just remain oblivious to the fact that their explanations were shallow after they gave them. Huh. So that, I thought that's interesting. By second or fourth grade, you you experience this effect where you think you understand something. Somebody asks you to explain it, and then you realize you understand it less than you thought. Apparently, oh. kindergartners don't have that realization. They just give a not very good explanation, and they're still pretty confident. Huh.
1: You know, I wonder if this to, to possibly put the narrative spin on this, uh, I'm reminded of a scenario that I encounter with my own son and uh, that my, my mother, who is a kindergarten teacher, has encountered with kindergarten students. And this and I'm sure parents out there can uh, relate to this. But if the kid comes home from school. You ask, what did you do at school today? And the answer is nothing or I don't know. <laughs> and and it's 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 confounding for uh, an adult cuz you're like how can you not know how can you not have the of course you know you were there right like just half an hour ago uh so i wonder if part of that is like as you get older you're more willing to just fall back on on a on a very vague idea of what the narrative was whereas when you're when you're younger when you're kindergartner or, or or younger you're more inclined to just say I don't know. I don't. I don't know what I did today. Uh huh. And you know, as adults, maybe we should be more uh, open to that uh, kind of self-reflection. I don't know huh. what I did last week.
0: Well, oh, that's true.
1: You probably don't. Yeah. I mean, I mean you if, might, I to, if you, you might had to, you might remember actually, a few things. Yeah, but if you had to create a timeline, I mean, we see this all the time with, uh, with in cases where people are called upon it to uh, to create an alibi, Some criminal trials, right? Yeah. And they realize, oh, I I have no clue. There's a and this was like a, a month ago.
0: You out there listening, what were you doing four Saturdays ago at 4 p.m.? <laughs> People might actually remember that because it might have been a holiday. I'm not sure. Anyway, okay, so they did a second study in the same research, and it was the same kind of control for domains of knowledge that we saw in the research from the last episode. So they ran the same test again, but instead of asking them to explain how a device works, they asked them to explain how to do something, to to look at a procedure. Um, so, uh, so instead, how do you make a cheese pizza? You know, second graders, fourth Mm -hmm. graders, kindergartners, um, how do you change a flat tire? How do you catch a fish with a fishing rod? And the results were just like adults. The kids did not show the illusion of depth pattern for procedures. In fact, after giving the explanations, their ratings of their initial knowledge were adjusted upward. And that was the same thing we saw for adults. So kids and adults both. They don't overestimate how well they know how to do things, though they might overestimate how well they understand how external things work. Okay.
1: Well, that would, that would line up with, uh, with my, uh, relationship with Bastion, because he'll say, he's more inclined to say, I don't know if it's, what did you do today? But if it's something like, how do volcanoes work? He doesn't really have a, a firm knowledge of how volcanoes work, but he, I'm, I'm sure he could go on and on about it.
0: Right. <laughs> Okay, so that's some more replication and some, some things. It might give us some things to think about with, uh, with the raising of children and, and how we think about the education of our, of our, our, our young, uh, members of our species. But we should look at the perhaps education of the adults of our species because adults, they have the power to do things with their understanding of causal systems in the world. And in this sense, the illusion of explanatory depth could actually have many potential applications. For example, here's a very quick one. In marketing and consumer behavior, mm-hmm. uh, research indicates that people's willingness to spend money to buy a product, I, I saw this reported in one of the papers we we're talking about, their willingness to spend money on something is related to their belief that they understand how the product works. So given our differential understanding, uh, our confidence and understanding based on different types of knowledge domains uh, and the fact that you can trigger people to realize their overconfidence by forcing them to explain it, that could have some real impact on stuff like marketing and consumer behavior. But another potential and probably much more important application would be in political extremism.
1: Yes. So – Perhaps a lot of you are like like me. Uh, I don't like to engage in political arguments, not with friends, not with family, uh, because arguing about politics is not it's, it's not terribly fun for me personally. Usually uh, not terribly effective. Yeah. No one's mind has ever changed, especially like the more strongly the opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't say ever, but
0: almost never.
1: Almost never. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing's going to really come of it. Uh, and, there, you know, there's a good chance that the conflicting uh, argument here isn't even about the thing you're arguing about. Right. You know, there's some other underlying thing that, or some unspoken assumption about uh, uh, national character, human behavior, what have you.
0: Yeah, the uh, the 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 supposed issue under debate is actually just a battleground where you are confronting uh, people with with different. I don't know, feelings about things, yeah. uh, different values that go unstated in the conversation.
1: Yeah. And there's a good chance, and this go, this go, goes across all, this is a bipartisan uh, observation. There's a chance you're not even arguing with that person. You're just arguing with essentially bullet points that were covered uh, by uh, a media personality or, or even uh, something that came up in a news article. And they're just kind of regurgitating the information.
0: Yeah. Th- this is one of my least favorite things about political debates is that we, we tend to argue not with the person sitting across from us, but with people like you. Mm-hmm. Isn't that horrible? Yeah. You know, this is how people like you think, and I'm going to argue with people like you instead of with
1: you. Yeah. And you just have ukes and zooks going at it there, talking about which side of the toast the butter, uh, goes on. And plus, on top of all of this, of course, so often the topic isn't even that cut and dry. Right. I refer our listeners back to our episode on wicked problems. Right. Which gets into so, so many of the big problems in society are so complex that any attempt to correct them just creates more problems, et cetera. Right. Uh, it's it's a messy affair. Right. So where this ends up tying into our topic today, people like you and me, but especially those uh you might wish to avoid an argument with, often hold extreme opinions about complex policies and they mistakenly think they understand uh, the causal processes underlying those policies. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. We we have strong opinions about things even without really understanding those things super well. Yeah. Uh, Understanding the uncontroversial factual character of those things. Right. Yes. Like you might have a very strong opinion about. Medicare, I don't know, I just made that up because it's a complex government instrument. Mm -hmm. Um, but if somebody asked you to explain how Medicare works, you'd be like, well, um, there's the government and you, you know, whether you're pro or or pro or against, you know, we, we just, we, It's much easier to generate an opinion than it is to comprehend a complex causal system.
1: Right. Like I'm always reminded just in politics with politics in general, but especially on this topic, I'm reminded of the the Simpsons uh, Treehouse of Horror episode in which the, the aliens, King and Kodos, uh, Replace Bill Clinton and Bob Dole during the nineteen ninety six election. It's one of the finest moments in the history of The Simpsons. Yeah, is that uh that there's, episode? There's that wonderful moment where I believe, believe it's King, um, and I forget which. I think he's pretending. He's I think he's pretending to be dull. Okay, and he says uh, he he probably announces in the, the I think they're doing a debate, and he says abortions for all. Boo! He says very well, no abortions for anyone. Boo! And then he thinks, he says, abortions for some, miniature American flags for others. And that that tends to go. <laughs> yeah, up.
0: the crowd is pacified.
1: Now, now, Kang had an excuse for not understanding the human complexity, here, right? Because he was a, <laughs> a, a tentacled alien. Uh-huh. Uh, not every political candidate has uh, that handicap uh, on their performance. But but each attempt here by Kang at policy seemed like a decent solution. Mm-hmm. Now, the rest of us voters, non-voters and even some uh, elected officials aren't much better off. American voters have an amazing ability to maintain strong political views concerning complex policies and yet at the same time remain uh, relatively uninformed about how such policies would bring about the desired outcome. Right.
0: Your opinion is very strong, but you can't necessarily demonstrate the factual knowledge on which your opinion is supposedly based.
1: Yeah. Well, like without even drawing any any specific examples? I'm sure listeners out there, no matter which side of the, the vast gaping political divide you reside on, you can think of an example where the other side has, has presented a simplistic, uh, solution for a complex problem. Mm-hmm. And the people on the other side, the, you know, the butter side down folks, they, uh, they seem to believe 100% that this will fix it. Yeah. Contrary to our understanding that, yeah, that's not really how you fix complex problems. Yeah.
0: And given the grammar of what you just said, of course, your side does that, too. Right.
1: So what's going on here? Uh, I mean, you can't just say we're dumb Americans brainwashed by reality television because that, too, is boiling it down to a rather simplistic approach. And in this, we get into the idea that maybe it is the illusion of explanatory depth.
0: Yeah, that that could be contributing to this type of uh, extremist opinion holding.
1: Right. And so that's where this paper comes in. 2013, published in uh, Psychological Science, Political extremism is supported by an illusion of understanding. And this was by Fernbach, Rogers, Fox and Sloman. Mm-hmm. So what did they do in this experiment? Well, they set out to see if people really do have unjustified confidence in their understanding of complex politics and to see if this is this in turn contributes to polarization. Mm-hmm. It's the the same premise that we've been talking about, except with, with uh, uh, causal systems instead of machines. OK,
0: so the, or well, it would be a different kind of causal system, mm-hmm. right? It'd be so policies or uh, proposals for uh, things that should be done in a country, things that are in their own way, ki- a kind of machine, but they're not a physical
1: device or a natural phenomenon. Right. And this in turn would affect. Preferences and behaviors. So if this is all the case, if we can really look to explanatory depth uh, for a solution here, then merely asking people to explain the mechanisms behind their policy uh, ideas would decrease their sense of understanding in those of those ideas, and force them to express more moderate political views. No. So this would be just like the Kang scenario, yeah. where King says abortions for all, and he's immediately shouted down, and he realizes, whoa, maybe I don't have a handle on this uh, human abortion topic quite like I had. I better go <laughs> in the opposite direction.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, and it leads to this correction effect. Now, part of what they're saying also is that they're. Drawing on this idea that decreasing a person's subjective sense of understanding mm-hmm. uh, on a topic will actually lead to moderation. And uh so th- this is drawing, of course, on the research on the illusion of explanatory depth. But also they mention that it's drawing on research that they cite giving evidence that, quote, people are more likely to change their attitudes about a policy when they have less confidence in their knowledge about it. Right. You're more mm-hmm. likely to change your opinion when you're less confident that you know about the subject of the opinion. Right. Note the oper- operative word here is confidence when they have less confidence in their knowledge, not when they actually have less knowledge. It, this It doesn't address how much you actually know. But if you don't think you know as much about the subject, you might be more persuadable on your opinion about that subject. Right. Uh, and this is the same gap explored in the illusion of explanatory depth research. So th- that's the basis of their, uh, their investigation.
1: And, uh, the researchers went into this realizing that this theory, and, and, they'll, we'll talk about this, uh, in, in more depth here, but they realized that this kind of runs counter to research that had previously shown that people tend to double down on their crazy ideas, their extreme ideas when confronted about
0: them. Yeah, sort of the, the backfire effect. You right. might have heard about this in politics. If somebody uh, if somebody has an extreme opinion or has an opinion at all and you try to present them with counter evidence against their opinion or ask them to state reasons for their opinion or do any kind of confrontation like that, people tend to become more extreme.
1: Right. Uh, An example that has been brought up before is, uh, is, is when someone is, is conned by a con artist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you would think, oh, well, you, the, the con artist has been denounced. You should, you're going to denounce them too, right? Right. Depending on how much effort they put into, uh, supporting the con artist, though, they might just double down completely and say, no, they're absolutely right. This yeah. is, this is complete malarkey you're throwing out here.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in that case, there's also a sunk cost fallacy involved. Mm-hmm. Like you've, you've thrown in with, right. a, with a con artist. Uh, you, you kind of don't want to accept the possibility that you have, you have squandered all of this time and money. And 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 personal reputation, getting hoodwinked. Uh, so you, yeah, you, you pretty much have no choice. You've got to double down. You've got to yeah, make it. you bought it the true. bumper sticker. Yeah,
1: <laughs> how it's not coming off. Right. Uh, so yeah. So often
0: people, uh, it's it's hard to talk somebody out of an extremist position. Confrontation often just leads to them either staying where they are or becoming more extreme. So the real question is, can we exploit the, the illusion of explanatory depth? Uh, the fact that, uh, showing people, asking people to explain makes them realize that they understood mechanistic processes less than they thought.
1: Can that perhaps change people's opinions? Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will see if uh, there's, if this holds any water at all. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
3: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit attcom slash hypergig for details.
0: All right, we're back.
1: So let's look at the first experiment in this study. Okay, so participants were asked to rate their understanding of six political policies. One group of uh, participants provided uh, ratings of their positions both before and after they generated uh, mechanistic explanations. Okay. So they, this is a one to seven thing, uh, as in previous uh, studies we've looked at. OK. One strongly against, seven strongly in favor. OK. And if you're wondering about the policies, they were Iran sanctions, raising the Social Security retirement age, single pay- payer health care, cap and trade carbon emissions, national flat tax and merit based teacher pay.
0: OK. I think those are good examples because they're all things that you can easily find a lot of people having strong opinions about for or against. But they're also... uh complex in terms of detail and in terms of effect. And so a lot of people might not actually know very well how these things are supposed to work.
1: Yeah. And there's some sort of hidden complexity, I think, to all of those, too. Yeah. Um, So. After this, they they were asked to quantify their own level of understanding of these positions. A lot of this is going to sound familiar because it's following very similar methodology. Mm-hmm. And finally, they were asked to provide that they pro- provide that mechanistic explanation and they were asked to then re-rate their understanding of the policies. So exactly the same essentially narrative flow to this experiment as we encountered uh, with previous experiments. As expected, post-explanation ratings of understanding were lower than pre-explanation ratings. Okay, so that's the that's the
0: mechanism we've seen before. The illusion of explanatory depth exposed by you trying to give an
1: explanation of a thing. Right. And the same also proved true with the differences between position extremity scores, Uh, though the authors point out that the uh, Social Security and merit pay issues differed the least. Mm -hmm. Judgments made after explanations were less extreme uh, than were judgments made before explanations. (laughs) So their, their quote here on this is, quote, our interpretation of this pattern is that attempting to explain policies made people feel uncertain about them, which in turn made them express more moderate views. Well, that
0: is interesting. Uh, now one thing we should say, and it's gonna apply to a lot of stuff throughout this, uh, throughout this study, but it's just worth noting that the statistical effect shown here, uh, even if it holds true in general and, and the study's results are valid and correct, the, the effect is not drastic. People aren't just like floored by the shallowness of their understanding and completely converted to the opposite view or something Mm -hmm. or, or to an undecided position. But it is appearing to show a modest moderation effect. People reduce the extremity of their opinion.
1: Now, one question that remained uh, here for the researchers was, are we sure that it's, uh, it's their attempt to explain the mechanistic explanation at work here? and not merely reflection, greater consideration of the topic.
0: Right. So what if instead of making them explain the mechanics of uh, raising the Social Security retirement age, what if we just asked them to talk about the idea of raising the Social Security retirement age? Would that do the same thing or mm-hmm. give their reasons or something like that?
1: All right. So that's where experiment two comes in. Similar approach, except one group was asked to explain why they held the positions this, uh, you know, as prior research has suggested that when people think about why they hold a position, their attitudes tend to become more extreme. Right. The researchers predicted less attitude moderation in the explain why group rather than the explain how group. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is what they found. They said, quote, experiment number two replicated the results of experiment number one and showed further that reductions in rated understanding of policies were less pronounced among participants who enumerated reasons for their position than among participants who generated causal explanations for them.
0: OK, so uh stating the reasons why you think that we should or shouldn't raise the Social Security retirement age, that – moderates your position less, you know, Uh, but explaining how that process would work moderates your position more. Right.
1: Now, they didn't find that enumerating reasons for supporting position led to an increase in extremism. They, right. They said, although an analysis of individual reasons suggests that it did increase overall attitude extremity when participants provided a reason that was an evaluation of the policy.
0: Okay. So that's sort of also not going along with some previous research that right. had said that if you give reasons why you feel a certain way, that makes your opinion more extreme. Yeah. That, that wasn't found here. Right.
1: Now I'm reminded in all of this of a moment in the, the wonderful 1985 film, Return of the Living Dead. Oh, it's one of my favorites. It's this is wonderful. Clue Gulliger, uh, zombies. Yeah. Fab- fabulous film, uh, yeah, one of the best zombie films. The zombies talk in this. Time.
0: Yeah, th- that's what makes this one unique. Mm-hmm. I mean, the zombies actually start speaking. They're not especially profound, or maybe they are. I don't know. Uh, yeah, the zombies can talk, and so. Robert you you were thinking of this particular scene where they interrogate a zombie.
1: Yeah, there's a character named Ernie and he has like a half of a zombie on the table there and he's he's asking it questions. And he says, uh, can you uh, you can hear me? Yes. Why do you eat people? Not people, brains. Brains only? Yes. Why? The pain. What about the pain? The pain of being dead. It hurts to be dead? I can feel myself rot eating brains. How does that make you feel? It makes the pain go away.
0: (laughs) Okay, wait a minute. So they're interrogating. They're they're almost like, could you could you reduce the extremity of the zombies position (laughs) by forcing them to give a mechanistic explanation of how eating brains reduces the pain of being dead? uh maybe but here in this case it is the zombie really explaining
1: i don't know it's it's the zombie's forced to provide some level of self-reflective explanation of its hunger for human brains but it's not really mechanistic it's yeah. it's merely an explanation of really why the zombie holds the position that it does
0: so if it's if this just giving reasons it might be staying where it is or actually becoming more extreme yeah so maybe what you should do if you want to get moderation in the zombie is get the zombie to explain the, I don't know, the biological process by which eating brains reduces the pain.
1: Yeah. Explain to me how that could possibly work, zombie, because, because <laughs> I'm drawing a blank and then present it with a nice, uh, you know, soft, uh, pre-shaved, uh, forehead. and see if it goes after the brain mate it might be a little less likely who knows well that brings us to experiment three uh outside of the zombie film um Because, you know, we can we can go back and forth on whether the zombie will eat the brain. But more uh, important here would, would be would the reflective voter vote differently based on everything. Might they choose to donate differently to campaigns or organizations? Okay,
0: so this is tracking the fact that just how extreme you report your position is might be different than what you would actually do based on your political feelings.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the same steps were taken as in the previous two experiments, only this time the subjects were asked at the end of the experiment to choose whether or not they would donate a bonus payment to a relevant advocacy group.
0: I believe the bonus payment was 20 cents.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And they found that, yes, attempting to create a mechanistic uh, explanation resulted in a less likelihood of putting money behind that uh, 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 that cause via a donation.
0: OK, so if you are strongly against uh, the flat tax mm-hmm. and then you are asked to explain how the flat tax would work. And, and you have to give that mechanistic explanation. You're less likely to donate money to organizations that advocate against the flat tax than someone who was against it and didn't have to explain what their, uh, what, how it worked.
1: Yeah. It would be like if, I don't know, let's say you're in ancient Egypt and, uh, a pharaoh says, we're going to build a pyramid. Yeah. And this is going to solve our problems. And you're like, yeah, build that pyramid. I'm in 100%. I'm going to donate, uh, you know, X amount of labor or whatnot. Uh huh. Uh, and the, But if you were asked, actually, can you explain how building this pyramid is going to help uh, everybody out? And then you draw the blank and then you think, well, maybe I'm not going to donate as much of my my service here.
0: Now, I wonder there, because if if you say how the pyramid is going to help people. That seems like that may introduce some value judgments uh, well, but that, if, that might undercut the mechanistic explanation effect.
1: Well, yeah, I guess I should be more clear and say that. uh explain how the how the building of the pyramid is going to achieve the stated goals. Yeah, what what will it do? Yeah. And uh you know, and and if the the answer is not that compelling or it seems more complex uh, mm. than one has the grasp of, then yeah, it might make you a little less uh supportive of it in in deeds action or certainly money.
0: Yeah, though I would also certainly guess just intuitively that Mechanistic explanations of how something will work are different than mechanistic explanations of a something that already exists, either in terms of proposition as a policy Mm. and is written down uh, or something that exists in nature or is an artifact.
1: Yeah. So in this study, they said. They summarized it at the end by saying explanation generation will by no means eliminate extremism. But our data suggests that it offers a means of counteracting a tendency supported by multiple psychological factors. Yeah.
0: And that tendency, of course, is political extremism. Right. Yeah.
1: Which is ultimately heartening. Yeah, because it it, it it gives us the message that hey, if you don't want people to hold ridiculous, extreme, uh, views on things that are ultimately going to be hurtful and harmful, and not and and, and nothing good is going to come of it. It's not actually going to help any of the problems they're attempting to solve. It's a matter of education. It's a matter yeah. of getting people presenting people with facts, or at least not even that, but just making no. them question.
0: Yeah, not presenting them with facts, just asking them to explain the not not the uh, politicized parts, but the pure mechanical parts of how what they're saying will work.
1: Yeah. To just think about it. (laughs) Think about the the topic. Yeah. Think about this proposed solution and and the problem that it's supposed to solve and ask some critical questions. Yeah. Critical thinking. Who would have thunk it?
0: (laughs) All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll look at a couple more topics uh, before we wrap up our discussion of the illusion of explanatory depth.
3: inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a man. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Okay,
2: picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can conquer it. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe? Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: All right, we're back. Okay, so one topic that I thought of as – and it has come up in the research as being related to the illusion of explanatory depth – but somewhat different mm-hmm. is the often cited, the very interesting, but also much misinterpreted and misused Dunning-Kruger effect. So uh, you may have heard about this before. I, I think we should do a whole episode about it at some point. So we're not going to get into too much depth about it here. Um, but. It's one of those things that I find very interesting, but I'm also very annoyed by much of the discussion about because a lot of it, I think, boils down to uh, people like this effect too much. It's it's very interesting in reality, but a lot of people uh seem to like to bring it up in a way just to show that they are mentally superior to others.
1: Yeah. Now, if you're out there and you're in your as you're saying to yourself, I don't actually know what this is. Uh, don't feel dumb about it. I actually <laughs> wasn't super familiar with it uh, prior to research for this episode. So in brief, the Dunning-Kruger effect is all about cognitive bias. Right. The idea here is that relatively unskilled individuals feel a false sense of superiority as they mistakenly assess their ability to, to be much higher than it than it accurately is.
0: Yeah. So the the very, very brief summary, and we could get into more detail in the future if we do a full episode about this mm-hmm. uh, study and, and its critics and interpretations. Um, but the basic idea is that people who are very unskilled at a particular type of task tend to judge their own abilities way higher than they are because being unskilled at the task usually comes along with a lack of metacognitive ability. In other words, Unskilled people tend to be not aware of how unskilled they are and underestimate the level of expertise required it takes to do uh, that is required to do something well.
1: Yeah, and this was first observed by the well the study authors uh, David Dunning and Justin Kruger of Cornell University in 1999. Yeah. They said, uh, quote, we propose that those with limited knowledge in a domain suffer a dual burden. Not only do they reach mistaken conclusions and make regrettable errors, but their incompetence robs them of the ability to realize it. Right. As you said, though, here's the thing: it's very easy and very appealing to throw the Dunning-Kruger effect effect around willy-nilly at everyone you don't like, you don't agree with, anyone who seems to be overstating their understanding of a topic. I think it's a lot like labeling someone a sociopath. Mm-hmm. It's far too easy to do if you have just a basics, even you know, surface level understanding of the symptoms and characteristics.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of interesting. Uh, like people shallowly engaging with a with the idea of a psychological concept that has to do with shallow understandings
1: <laughs> of things. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the, the Dunning kruger effect lines up with the illusion of explanatory depth and runs contrary to, to it, but it's also susceptible to misuse in part because we suffer from the illusion of explanatory depth on the topic.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I think we should definitely come back and do a whole episode about this uh, about this subject sometime in the future, especially because I've read some interesting criticisms of the Dunning-Kruger effect mm-hmm. and how it's applied and, and
1: how uh, it might not be all it's cracked up to be. It's almost as if a simplistic explanation for human behavior uh, uh, might have some faults with it. Yeah, well, I don't want to
0: entirely knock it either because I, I do think it's interesting research and, mm-hmm. and it uh, deserves our attention. So,
1: but, but this seems to be the uh, – this is the way things go. If you have a a, a – a, well, let's not say simple, but let's say if you have a – a nice streamlined theory for why people do the stupid things they do. Um, it's probably a little more nuanced, but, but, they, but it at least gives us the, the wonderful things about these theories is they give us a starting point for the discussion, for the further discussion mm-hmm. of that thing. It's like, like nailing a, a, a metal stake into the side of a mountain when you're climbing. Uh, it's oh, it's yeah. not the only you're gonna have to you're gonna have to hammer in more stakes to make it to the top but uh but but this is how you scale the mountain of ignorance
0: that's a that's a nice analogy, Robert oh well thank you. We're always scaling, aren't we scaling never reaching the top Wait, no, sorry, if it's the mountain of ignorance, maybe we start at the top when we're trying to climb down without falling off of a precipice
1: yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking of a divine comedy uh, version of that oh yeah purgatory, yeah, right? okay, so.
0: Last thing I think we have to do is, uh, offer our own, just based on our reading and our, our opinions, a, a list of advice on how to avoid illusory understanding. Now, this is not like, this is not like a doctor approved list. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, as far as we know, nobody has come up with a foolproof way to keep yourself from overestimating your understanding of how things work. But, Robert, I think you and I can get behind a few recommendations coming from us non-experts on this subject.
1: Yeah, just ways to remain conscious of how the brain works. First thing I would say is that there's
0: some slight evidence that simply being aware of the illusion of explanatory depth does not destroy our susceptibility to it. That's important to remember. Just because mm-hmm. you know about it now doesn't mean you're immune to it. Uh, one example is back in the original study we talked about in the last episode, many of the participants subjectively reported. I th- you, you might remember this. They said something like, oh, if only I'd gotten a different subset of the devices on the list to explain, I would have done much better. Uh, though the effect presented broadly across all the devices and the different groups. Mm-hmm. Thus, even after we're made aware of the gaps in our knowledge and the fact that we overestimate how well we will do in explaining things, uh, these people were like, oh, I would have done much better explaining different things. Yeah, <laughs> I, they probably wouldn't have been until they got in the moment trying to explain them that they would have realized that they couldn't do any better on those things than they did on the the devices they originally had to explain. Uh, they thought it was a fluke somehow. So that y- you are not now inoculated. Having heard this, you're you're not immune,
1: right? Yeah, it's it's not just magically going to dispel uh, your your miss your misinterpretation of your own understanding.
0: One of the main things I would recommend to avoid the illusion of explanatory depth is practice explaining things. And be sure to put them in your own words.
1: Yeah, this is this is a big one. And this is as we discussed uh, earlier. This is something that I find uh, in my own experience a lot is that uh, I'll be asked by my wife what we're doing an episode on. I'll have to explain it in my own words. And that's sometimes when I realize that I don't understand something mm-hmm. well enough yet.
0: Yeah. Often I have the experience of like I read a scientific article or something I'll just read it and then I'll think, okay, I, I read that. I comprehended it. I can, I can explain it now. And Mm -hmm. then I have this problem. I start talking. I get a few sentences in and I realize there are big gaps. There's like, wait, there are parts I didn't understand. And I don't even realize those gaps are there. I'm completely blind to Mm -hmm. them. And the way to eliminate them is to essentially summarize what I have read in writing, to write a summary myself in my own words. What did I just read? What, what was it about? What did it say? and then the gaps in my understanding become clear and i can fill them in uh, so i i think that helps a lot in becoming aware of the limitations of your own knowledge and comprehension one of the things coming from the interpretations of the uh the researchers themselves is be wary of mental animations mm-hmm. if you're imagining how something especially something physical works uh just because you can play a cartoon in your head of how this device works doesn't mean that the cartoon you're playing in your head actually makes causal sense. You're the imagination idea you have of something is not constrained by the laws of physics and reality is. So we're very apt to run a mental movie of how a can opener works or something that makes sense in our imagination. And it's not until we try to explain it that we realize that we're we're missing parts and it wouldn't actually work if we tried to put it together the way we're imagining it. One more, I would say, is be wary of labels and vocabulary. This came up in the first study also. Mm -hmm. Just because you know the name of components doesn't mean you understand what the components actually do.
1: Yeah, and I think that that also applies to... Like uh, okay. I didn't think of this earlier, but but now it's occurring to me: business jargon and terminology, oh, you know, sort of the, the synergized backward overflow kind of thing, where you end yeah. up throwing around these terms for things that that maybe have definite meanings, but uh-huh. then they lo- they're stripped of those meanings through uh, repeated use, and they just become uh, kind of just pointless m- mantras that are that are. Uh, you know, thrown back and forth.
0: You know, with business terminology, I think it, we talked about this in our euphemisms mm-hmm. episode, where where I think a lot of the business jargon uh, kind of avoids saying bluntly things that would not sound so pleasant if you said them bluntly. But mm-hmm. another thing that I think it maybe does is helps give us an illusion of understanding of the workings of complex systems that are actually I mean, a business is a complex system. Yeah. It's a machine. It's hard to understand how all the parts are actually working and it, even harder probably to predict its behavior. But if you have technical sounding names for things and, you know, lots of uh, domain specific labels for business Terms and business phenomena, it might help give you a sense of understanding and control over a thing that is actually a wild dragon and you're just riding it. Yeah. And then finally, th- this one might sound kind of weird, but, uh, just stick with me for a second here. I, w- I want to see how well this would work. What about trying to embody the causality of a process you're trying to describe? Um, so when people are trying to describe processes of things that they know how to do procedures, you know, how to do something, they generally understand pretty well how uh, how, how well they can explain it. They're pretty accurate, but not so with explaining external uh, events or external devices like how a camera works. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that would change if when you're trying to understand how a camera works, you imagine yourself as the light entering the lens and, and you sort of walk through the process in an embodied imaginative state, like going to all the places and in inside the device and seeing what happens to the energy and the matter there. I don't know if that's really possible. Maybe that's just a really harebrained idea, but I wonder if that would actually make a difference.
1: Uh, well, I'm not sure about with, with the camera, but I think that there's, this is very valid with human anatomy. Yeah, uh, or at least I found that in in past episodes that I've I've done and articles that I've I've written that have to do with the uh, the functioning of various organs and systems, I always fall back on the uh, fantastic voyage scenario or the interspace <laughs> scenario of the miniaturized submarine yeah. inside the human body because it does it it does put me there. It transforms a distant, you know, small system into a place that I can envision myself. Mm-hmm. And that does help in, in my situation. It, it helps me understand it.
0: Like it, it can sort of mentally transform an external process into a procedure. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder about that. It might help. It might be worth a try. Yeah. Who knows?
1: Um, in all of this, I, I can't help but be reminded of a of a, a, a much touted uh, quote from Timothy Leary. Of course. Um, uh, most of you have probably heard this one before, but I think it bears repeating because it lines up directly with what a lot of we're talking about here. It said to, to think for yourself, you must question authority and learn how to put yourself in a state of vulnerable, open-mindedness, chaotic, confused vulnerability to inform yourself. It's – I mean I guess maybe what that would mean
0: in this context is, um, is – I mean wanting to understand the causal mechanisms by which things work but also just recognizing and sort of accepting that where you haven't forced yourself to make an effort to understand things explicitly you're going to be relying on more magical
1: understanding
0: than you realize.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the, in my, in my own handling of uh, of topics here at work I I I've tried to to put myself in, in, in that space, you know, and realize that, you know, however I think something works might not actually be, uh, accurate. Uh, that there, there may be more to it. I mean, it's kind of like the can opener analogy you keep mentioning. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, that shows up as an example in these studies. Even as you're mentioning it, I feel, on one hand, I feel like I know how a can opener works. Uh huh. It's the, you know, the little tooth of metal sticking in there. And then you, you know, I can picture the scenario. Yeah. I have the mental uh, imagination and I, well, maybe you do understand, I, and I feel like I probably do. But then, on the other hand, I'm willing to I'm willing to admit that maybe there's something I'm missing. Uh-huh. Maybe there's an interesting physical property to the can opener, or there's a there's some some sort of quirk of physics at work. There's something. Maybe there is some mystery to the can opener, and I and I want to know more. And therefore, I'm willing to admit. Yeah, I might not have the can opener down as a, as a human technology.
0: Well, I think in this case, uh, probably the best strategy for life is to, uh, take a cue from your own stories, not, not from yours, but to go open up the toilet and see what's inside. <laughs> <laughs> to, 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 you know, interact with the mechanisms that we think we understand. Always try to open them up and see what's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Get hands on with it. One last thought
0: that I thought might be interesting to, uh, to bring up is that wh- what is the biological origin of illusory understanding? Like, w- would we say that it's just a cognitive quirk that sort of it's a byproduct of other cognitive systems that we need in order to survive? Or should we think of it as, well, you know, most of our traits are in some sense selected for, evolved. It is the illusion of explanatory depth an evolved trait. Is it something that has some kind of value in our lives? Um, and and is it a necessary part of our minds, a, a trait with real survival value? I would certainly say that it, it doesn't pay to misunderstand the world around us. Like I can't see any way in which it's a good thing to not know how things work. Mm-hmm. But perhaps given the general limitations of our understanding, like given the fact that we don't understand how a lot of things works work perhaps it pays to operate with a sense of confidence that allows us to interact with complex systems even when we don't understand them as well as we think we do
1: well it's like learning to use say learning to use a computer yeah. like one of the the problems that i've encountered before with with individuals uh, you know particularly like older family members uh like they, they, they're scared of the computer They're scared of doing something wrong. Yeah. They don't have the the blind confidence that is necessary to just jump in there and make mistakes.
0: Yeah. And so I wonder if maybe that kind of blind confidence is actually a trait that's selected for. And it has maybe it has a lot of bad consequences. Maybe it leads to political extremism when we think we understand how complex social phenomenon and government instruments work better than we actually do. Maybe it leads to misunderstanding of how our technology is really functioning and and trouble with how to fix it, you know, over all kinds of problems like this, but if we didn't have this trait, if we didn't have this overconfidence about how well we understood things, we might just be paralyzed. Maybe yeah. we couldn't interact with the world because we would never have enough, uh, have enough boldness, have enough heart
1: to just leap into things and live. Yeah, we wouldn't be foolish enough to be brave. Yeah. No, just, just something to think about. All right. Well, hey, think about that, everyone. And in the meantime, while you're mulling that over, you can head on over to com. That is our homepage, our mothership. You'll find all the podcast episodes dating back to the very beginning of time. You will find uh, blog posts, videos. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and who knows what else.
0: And if you want to get in touch with us directly to give us feedback on this episode or any other – or to request episode topics for the future, or just let us know what you think, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics,
0: visit howstuffworks.com.
1: What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit
2: Visible.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors Has it? And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.